Uh, you should have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 12, which is going to be our main text for the day. And it's always a good idea when you're reading a new book of the Bible to have like a bird's eye view before you take a worm's eye view of a specific text. And so I want to start by just giving an overview of the book of Hebrews, written around 68 AD to Jewish Christians who were being condemned because of their newfound faith in Christ. They've moved from Judaism to Jesus, and now they're struggling. They're struggling to believe that Jesus is better. They came to five faith, faith, oh, I'm so off already. They came to faith in Christ, it's been a little while, and were fired up, but now some time has passed, and they've been beaten down by life, the realities of life, and just how hard faith is. These old religious Jews who would condemn them and persecute them, they would say, like, you guys don't have a temple. You don't have a high priest. You don't have ceremonies. You don't have the rituals. You meet in, like, houses and plain old buildings. You don't observe the special days, the Sabbaths. And so the author, who takes a very pastoral tone, is going to show the Hebrews that Jesus is better than all of that. He fulfills all that. He's superior to all that. He's the true rest. He's the true high priest. He's the new covenant. He's the better covenant. And the book takes a very pastoral tone, a very gentle tone. At times, it's like a gentle punch in the face. At times, it's an empathetic hug. But it takes a pastoral tone on how to deal with the realities of life, especially when you're discouraged. And for us, we're not former Jews And it may not seem relevant to us what's going on in Hebrews. It may not seem relevant to what's going on in Buena Park. But I want to take you through a quick look at the struggles of these Jewish converts. And let me summarize the problems going on in the book of Hebrews. We can get it up there. Number one, they're drifting towards sin. They're wandering away from Christ and they're drifting towards the world. They're neglecting their salvation. It says you're not paying attention You're not taking care of your great salvation. They are losing joy and hope and confidence in their faith that Jesus is better. Their hearts are hardened. Their conversation has lost its spiritual urgency. He has to remind them to exhort one another every day so that your hearts don't get hardened. They're just talking about sports. They're talking about finances. They're talking about family all the time. Their hearts are hardened also to the truth of God's word. They're dull of hearing. They're not asking questions. They come before it no longer hungry. They feel like they know it already. They're losing their desire to grow in maturity. He says, at this time, you guys should be spiritual teachers. But I have to go back to the elemental um, parts of the faith. You should be on solid food, but you're on milk. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, they've lost the sight of the importance of community. They have stopped gathering together, as is the habit of some. They're no longer thoughtful about how to encourage one another. They don't consider, they're not creative about how they could stir up the body towards love and good deeds. Hebrews 12.12, he says, you guys need to stand up, straighten your knees, put your arms to your side, get ready, run, stop being sluggish, stop being complacent. And the result of all this is that they are in danger of falling away from the living God. They have lost sight of what is at stake. I look at this list and I say it's pretty relevant for me. It doesn't take much effort for me to see this list and say that in this new year, I don't want any of this to be part of my life. I don't want any of this to be in your hearts, in our church. It wasn't always like this. This church wasn't always like this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 to 35, it says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward this church when they were first in line when they first came to christ they were fired up they were willing to suffer to endure hardship they knew and experienced their salvation and were willing to sacrifice for it 
But now they're on the brink of throwing it all away. We haven't been around for a church for very long, less than four years, but how easy for any church would it be after its establishment to begin to coast, to maintain, to be careless, to be passive? And this passage, people ask me, like, I only preach every, like, three or four months, so they ask me, how do you, your sermons are very random topics, and they ask me, how do you, like, pick your sermons? I just tell them, I I, I pick the passage that's been bouncing around in my mind that I need to hear, and this passage has been bouncing around in my heart and my mind for about six months, because honestly, it's just, sometimes it's just so tiring. Life takes a toll on you. Leadership takes a toll on you. I'm very, if you know me, I'm very easily encouraged, but I'm very easily discouraged. And at times it gets very tiring, or I feel complacent. And one of the reasons I know I need to take a sabbatical is because I know I have certain like heart attitudes or trajectories of the heart that I need to focus on. If you are feeling tired or discouraged, you're in sin, you're complacent, This book may give you an empathetic hug or may give you a needed punch in the face. We need both. Hebrews 12, which is going to be our passage for the day, is one of the clearest passages that I could think of on how to live the Christian life and more specifically how to continue. That's one of the main ideas that comes up again and again in in Hebrews. They're tired, they're discouraged. He's a continue, persevere, endure, keep going, hang in there. And he doesn't just tell us, like, he doesn't just command us. He tells us not just the what, but the how and the why. And as a pastor, he's going to counsel us on how to keep going. And so our outline for note takers for today, we have five points. Just pretty much, this passage is very clear. I don't need to have some fancy structure here, okay? We have five points. The call to run, the faithful examples, the weights that slow you down, the sins that cling to you, and the fuel for the race, okay? So let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, and we'll take a worm's eye view of this passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The first point is the call to run. And I want us to focus on the end of verse 1, which says, let us run with endurance the race that is before us. That's the controlling idea here. That's the main clause, the imperative, the command All the rest of the clauses are in support or how to obey this command. The Bible all over uses metaphors for the Christian life or the Christian journey. It's warfare, you're a soldier, it's a boxing match, a wrestling match, and here it's a race. Jesus is calling you to run. Run the race of faith. You're an athlete in a faith race. This is not a Sunday stroll. This is not something where we just cruise along. He's calling you to run the race. There's no cruise control obedience here. And again and again, the author of Hebrews, he exhorts them, you have to persevere. You have to keep going because it's hard. It's hard. This race is not easy. The word for race means agony, obstacles, problems, suffering. This race is going to be hard, and so what you need is endurance. Endurance, that word in the Greek is hupomone. Hupo means under. Mone means to remain, to remain under challenge, to stay in there when you're tired, when you're distracted, when you're on the verge of giving up. When everything in you wants to quit, if that's where you are right now, yet you're determined to continue on. That's what we're called to do. Run all the way to the tape. 
That's our goal for our life. Run to the tape. 2 Timothy 4.7 says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And let me make it very clear here and not make any assumptions. This is a faith race. If you don't have faith in Christ, you're not in the race. If you don't have faith in Christ, you may get energy, you may be excited watching other people run the race, but you're on the sidelines. You get into the race of faith by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ with a childlike faith. Not through your experience, not through your church history, not through your gifting or even your knowledge or even your theology. It's through faith in the perfect and complete work of Christ. Simple childlike faith brings you into the race. You might like the community, but without the Savior, you're lost. But some of you are right there. You're so close to getting up and getting in the race, but you haven't quite yet put your faith in Christ. And maybe it's a good thing that you're slow about it because the Bible calls you to count the cost. You're taking the call to faith seriously. But maybe God is working in your heart. You're in the process. He's working in you, and he's drawing you to himself. If you're new to Christianity, if you're new to church, it's okay if you're not sure if you're a Christian. It's okay. Assurance of salvation is something the Spirit has to give you in His time. You know, most people, when they start out the faith, they aren't sure. Oftentimes, you know, people ask me, when was I say, I, I don't know when. It was a season. And I would venture that most of you would say that. But there was a season where Jesus was becoming more clear to you. I don't know exactly when. There was a point, but I don't know when. But is the word of God coming alive to you? Hebrews 4 talks about the word of God is living and active. It exposes you. Are the sermons, is there something something starting to click for you where you're not just here for the community, you're here for something deeper? Is your sin starting to appear ugly and hideous? But it's now being revealed. And you're starting to realize that's something to mourn over. Is God himself, when we say that God is beautiful, God is amazing, does that... Is that starting to make sense to you? That this is not just a children's story. The death of Jesus is true and meaningful. If these are true of you, at a certain point, you have to embrace it. You press into it. You praise God. He's opening up your eyes to see your blindness. And you give thanks. You welcome it and publicly confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be a saved runner. True faith won't hide in the stands. It'll get up, confess, be baptized, and run the race. Thankfully, the author of Hebrews doesn't just say to run. You know, that in itself, if someone just calls and screams in your face, run, run, or don't worry, don't worry, you know, that in itself oftentimes is not helpful. But he gives plenty of inspiration in the rest of these clauses for us to help us to run. Second point, the faithful witnesses, okay, or the faithful examples. In Hebrews chapter 12, it starts off by saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and then we could jump to the end of verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Remember, let us run the race is the central idea here, and the rest is support. How do we run this race? First, you have to look to the faithful witnesses or examples that have gone before you and around you. What does that mean? 
Back in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, he closes that chapter by saying, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we are not the people that fall back, but we will preserve our souls. We will persevere. And then he goes into chapter 11 and says, well, and let me remind you of those who have gone before you, those who have struggled and yet endured. We call this a hall, of faith, a hall of faith, hall of fame of faith. Men and women like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, Rahab. Think about how Abel always gave his best to God. How Enoch considered walking with God to be the most important thing. Hang in there and think about Noah, who even when he was ridiculed, he built an ark. Think about Abraham, who gave up all sense of security in his home. He left his father's country and went to a strange land. He waited and waited upon the Lord when, he was, when the Lord promised him he would have a baby. And it felt impossible, but he waited. How long, O oh Lord? And... I look at this list, and I look at the heroes of the faith, and I recognize they didn't run a clean race. They fell into sin, or they were tossed around by life. You look further in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have people like David, who committed adultery and murder, and yet he finished. John the Baptist, who is just a weird guy, he finished. For you weirdos, he finished. There's John Mark. You know, here's this guy. I like Mark because for some reason, we don't know why, but Paul sort of looked down on him early in his missionary journeys because for some reason he quit. He stepped out of the missionary journeys, and yet at the end it shows he finished. My favorite example is Peter, who's the ultimate example of an up-and-down Christian. Three times he denied Jesus, and yet he finished faithfully. Timothy, who was a naturally... He was naturally a timid and fearful pastor. He finished. And the author of Hebrews is calling us to persevere in this long line of godly men and women. And when we read church history and biographies and stories of faithful men and women, you know, testimony is powerful. We're encouraged that maybe, like, man, right now I feel very alone. I feel like I'm crawling. But you look back and you look at even those who are dead now and you realize that the track was actually pretty crowded of faithful men and women who crawled their way to the finish line. That whatever you're going through, we're thankful that people have gone through that before. We think it's unique to us. It's not, actually. But they kept going. And we need modern examples. We have modern examples. We don't run alone. You do not run alone. God has surrounded us with a company of runners, specifically this church. As those run around you, by their example, by their encouragement, by their presence, they become a part of the cloud of witnesses that point to Jesus. Week after week, I look around and I see mundane, boring, ordinary faithfulness that witnesses to one another about God's faithfulness. And oftentimes we see all the scandals, we see all the bad stuff, but we have to remember there are faithful runners. I'm thankful I don't need to look too far or outsource to see faithfulness. To see people persevere amongst depression and at our church, abuse and drug use, betrayal, trauma, family brokenness, cancer, surgeries for unknown issues, even loss of children, disability, church splits, leadership scandals. We, we see that all over the place. You come from all types of backgrounds. You have all types of stress, just that everyday grinding stress that comes at you from all these different directions, and yet you're here. You haven't given up. And admittedly, maybe our knee-jerk reactions are not always good. And yet, takes a little while maybe we repent and have faith and get back on the right path some of you may also have been blessed with runners in your actual family 
your actual mothers and fathers who lived it out well. You have stories of their faithfulness. Timothy had that. 2 Timothy 1.5 says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt or dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Some of you are blessed to have an actual Lois and a Eunice, a mother or a grandmother. It's usually the mother or grandmother in your family who has a sincere faith. You have stories of them praying over you, and that faith now lives in you. You have a cloud of witnesses around you. And let me say one point, almost a side point. But one of the things that I want to challenge and encourage you, if you don't have that, it could be very easy for you. You could fall into the temptation to be bitter, to feel sorry for yourself, or you can see it as a privilege to start that for your family. That's up to you. That you'll pass on godliness, not father wounds. Maybe you haven't had a Eunice or Lois who had a sincere faith and passed it on to you. But you could pass it on to your children or the next generation. You know, the only list that matters, you can have all the degrees, all the achievements, all the money, all the all the riches of the world, but the only list that matters is if you are on the list called the Lamb's Book of Life. And that's a list where Jesus will write your name there for men and women of faith. That's the only list that matters. And I hope that my children will see and think of me as part of that list. That's a privilege to be the, f- the one to do that. As you run the race, look to the runners that are going before you or have gone before you and now run beside you and honor them. Third point, the weights that slow you down the weights that slow you down. Verse, going back to Hebrews chapter 12, again, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. And this is distinct from the clause that comes after it, which is sin which clings so closely. Okay? This is its own point. The author calls us to run the race, run hard, but in order to run, you have to get rid of the stuff that slows you down. Back during the Greek Olympics or or runners during biblical times, they would run almost naked because they didn't want any weight on their body to hinder them in the race, nothing to trip them up. It's the same thing today. When you see Olympic runners, they're not bogged down by all this extra stuff, nothing that will catch resistance. Or you watch a race car and it's stripped down as much as possible to get rid of unnecessary weight. And this idea of to lay aside every weight, to lay aside agkon, agkon in the Greek, which means bulk or mass or weight, this is not talking about sin. Okay, we'll talk about that next. This is talking about possibly good things that are innocent, where the Bible doesn't necessarily you know, restrict you from those, those things that can still slow you down, even praiseworthy things. Start with a sort of silly and almost embarrassing example for me. About six months ago, I downloaded this phone game called, I'll just tell you what it was, it was called Rise of Empires, okay? And I, I just needed something after a big test. I, was like, I just want to relax. I just want to play. And then eventually, I found myself a clan leader. And, <laughs> and I just... I felt loyalty to my clan members. I got to be there at 7 p.m. on Friday night. And to my embarrassment, I had to confess to Grace one day, like, Grace, I really want to upgrade my hero. (laughs) So I did something that I I never thought I would do. I spent money to upgrade my hero. (laughs) And I had to confess, Grace, don't let me do that again. I am so 
embarrassed at myself. Don't judge me. Some of you have done that. Some of you play for monthly fees. That's how I just, I was like, oh, I'm only paying once, right? <laughs> but honestly, I, I had to delete the game. When I deleted the game, Grace was like, good decision. <laughs> and it, it really was this verse in this section that kept popping up in my mind. Like, I know this is slowing me down. It was getting to a point where it was questionably sinful that I was like neglecting my family time or free time. And I knew I couldn't keep playing without, a, you know, I couldn't handle it, so I had to abandon it. That's a silly example, but it could be anything. It could be hobbies. It can be, hobbies are good things, but they can easily slow you down. It could be reading certain literature. I can't read the books I wish I could read, like historical fantasy books. Like, I loved reading those types of books when I was younger, but now I can't read those. There's too many sex scenes in them. Watching certain TV shows that are not inherently bad, but you know they're not good. They're not evil, but are they beneficial? Social media apps, you know, I think one of the worst things we could do is passively stroll or scroll through social media. Our phones, we just have to admit, if that's the first thing you grab in the morning, have probably distracted you from loving God. Diligence in school, we know that's a good thing, but can it slow you down? Absolutely. But we sort of say every time finals week, it's okay for me to put aside my faith. Here's a big one, almost inevitable one. It feels like family life. Family life. Nobody would try to attack family life as something that's bad, right? But can it slow you down? I hear people go to church and say, you know, that, that's a family-centered church. We don't want to be a family-centered church. There's only one type of church that's right. It's a God-centered church. If your life is so centered upon your kids, you will raise up self-centered kids. You're running a race. You need discipline. Take off the stuff that's slowing you down. Is it really that important? Is it really so urgent for you? Is it really just that amazing you have to watch that TV show you know you shouldn't watch? Some people get weighed down by things that others don't, and so I don't think we should be too legalistic about this, but are there good things, possibly even innocent things, that are making you stumble? Take off the ways to slow you down and repent of the sins that are clinging to you, that cripple you. The clause after it says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And I'm going to land here at this point for a little bit. We're talking about sinful things now. They don't just slow you down, they trip you up. They cripple your faith. They cling to you. They trip you. This is not an area where we should minimize it, where we compromise, where we just have a truce. This is something that is warring against you. Sin is anti-God. Sin, if you think about it, is spiritual insanity in your relationship with God. Sin is you choosing at that moment. You're not falling into it passively. You are choosing to rebel against God. You are choosing as a Christian to, to live as if there is no God. And for unbelievers, they cling to sin. That is in their nature. And when we say it's in their nature, it's natural for them to rebel. They love sin. They will immerse themselves in it. That's who they are. They're okay with that. It makes sense according to their worldview. Do whatever you want. You are the master in your life. But for believers, we don't cling on to sin, but sin clings on to us. And we need to kill it. No compromise. Declare war. No compartmentalizing. Like, I'm doing it okay in everything except this one area. So, oh, and it, you know, don't worry about that one area. And the text doesn't specify a specific sin here. It speaks generally. But let me bring up two categories or families of sin that I think are especially hurtful or really hurtful when you're running a long-distance race. The first category, the first family is complacency and arrogance. Complacency and arrogance. And especially if you've been Christian for years, it's easy to think, 
Well, you know, I've been, I've been doing all this stuff for a long time. I've been running the race. I've put in my time. I'm serving in all these different ministries. And you would never say this out, out loud to yourself, but in your heart, you're thinking, it's okay for me to coast for a season. I can handle it. I've earned it. We're in cruise control obedience. We're fine. Others set the pace for us, not scripture. We're coasting. It's effortless. And beneath it all, there's this feeling of uncritical satisfaction, a smugness, this really scary feeling that I've arrived. That's a scary place to be. And most who are complacent, they don't realize it. They, don't, they know how to not look prideful. They know they're not supposed to throw on Bible verses, but it could show itself by going through the motions, doing all the outwardly churchy things. They do all the things good Christians are supposed to do, but their hearts are far from God. This is honestly more dangerous for those who grew up in the church. You're familiar with it all. Familiarity is scary. You... Ha- you went to a Christian college. Nothing wrong with that. Or maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you're so busy with Christian activity and you feel like you have nothing left to learn. You know, as a preacher, don't let me deceive you into thinking. Just because I've preached it doesn't mean I've lived it. It just means I preached it. And just because you've heard it again and again, just because you've learned it, doesn't mean you've lived it. And in Scripture, if you haven't lived it, you haven't learned it. After a short while, you understand, you know, our church, we're very heavily focused on teaching. That's our gift. That's one of our passions. But after a while... Unless we're talking about eschatology, there's not too much new to learn, right? I'm not learning new things until, like, we go through a series on, like, with Rand or, you know, on Revelation. Actually, after a little while, even now, I'm like, I've heard this maybe ten times now. But have I experienced it? It's not about learning new stuff. It's about repetition, Again and again and again. You hear this, oh, I've heard this passage before. I don't really need to listen to this sermon. I know that passage. No, you do it again and again, and one day it clicks. It's not about new knowledge. It's about getting that knowledge deeper and deeper into your soul where it's logic on fire. And until that's where you're at, you haven't learned it. Until you say, like, not only God is good, but I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You haven't learned it. Don't be deceived into thinking you're more mature than you are, especially if you're in a season where everything is fine. It's easier to then coast, to depend on yourself, When we're complacent and arrogant, it's scary. It's arrogance because you don't feel like you need God. I'm fine. I'm independent. And the Bible again and again says that the person who feels self-reliant is foolish. That is folly. The person who is wise is not wise in their own eyes. They fear the Lord and they get wisdom. They pursue wisdom. They seek after it as if it's As if it's gold, they dig for it. They don't say, I've heard this a thousand times already, I'm good now. No, they keep getting wisdom. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 9 through 11 says, Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Repent. Contrast that with the Apostle Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Not that I have already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. The interesting thing about Christianity is that the more you eat, the more you get hungry. As you grow, the more you realize how much you have to grow. Don't be satisfied if tomorrow you're in the same place as you were yesterday. We pursue God. We run after holiness. We advance. We keep progressing. Keep running. Don't slow down. A second family of sin, and this one is very personal to me, these two, I picked these two just so you know because they're personal to me. Complacency and the second one is cynicism. Cynicism and bitterness. This is a hard one, but I think it, it just quietly clings to us in the background. It restricts us and trips us up. And some of us may fall into effortlessness. Others here, maybe you've fallen into exhaustion that leads to cynicism and then can possibly lead to bitterness and despair. Imagine you're in a race, and you're running, but you don't think you're going to finish. You're hardened, you're negative, you're cynical, you're full of despair. Every time something goes wrong, it, it's all downhill from here. You are not going to run well. What do I mean by being cynical? Being cynical is when you first believe that everyone around you is motivated purely by self-interest, it's when you see the wrongs of every situation and you fail to see the beauty and possibility in any circumstance. Cynics, we love Murphy's Law. You know what Murphy's Law is? If anything can go wrong, it will. And some of you cynics right now are thinking, well, it usually does. And our eyes start to roll and our hearts are hardened. And there's this constant negativity, a jaded attitude, disillusioned by life, con constantly you're you're just dissatisfied. It's a pretty well-known fact for those who know me that I am not what I would call a cheerful, positive person. I am a cynic. When I first met Rand in 2011, he affectionately gave me the label his favorite cynic or favorite pessimist. That's what an annoying label, right? <laughs> Maybe it wasn't affectionate. Maybe he was just trying to criticize me. That's my cynical side. When we were interviewing, you can ask him about this, but it's always a funny story. When we were interviewing Rand at church, he always brings up that I'm the guy. I was part of the interviewing committee that interviewed and helped decide to bring Rand on at our old church. I'm sitting there like this, right? And I'm done asking him all these negative questions, like, like what are you hiding to be fair, he made it easy to judge a book by its cover, but <laughs> I am, like, I, I'm a catastrophizer. Some of you are like, yes. Immediately, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get eaten by a tiger, or I'm going to have to live under a bridge. That's like where my mind goes at certain times. I just, it could go to dark places. I'm a worst case scenario thinker. I assume the worst. And for my fellow cynics, let me give you an empathetic hug, okay? I'm going to give you a punch in the face later, but let me give you an empathetic hug right now, okay? This is what life has taught you. You're probably cynical because you cared and got burned. You tried to help and someone rejected you. You poured out your soul and got little in return. You've had bad relationships with guys. You've seen couples split. You've seen your friends leave slowly. Before, you might have had unreasonable expectations, and now you have no expectations because it's better to expect nothing and not get hurt. I read this quote, and I don't know if it's true of me, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, one pastor, Kerry Newoff, he says, most cynics are former optimists. I don't feel like I was ever an optimistic <laughs> child, but maybe I think I could see that being true. Maybe you were in your teens and early 20s, wide-eyed, naive, full of hope and aspirations to change the world. Now you've entered your 30s, you look down on kids like that. Oh, so naive. Here's the process I've seen. Cynics are not naive. 
they know too much. You recognize that people fail you. You've seen the brokenness in life. Ecclesiastes 1.18 says, For much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more we know, the more we see what life is really like. Man, ignorance would be bliss. Next, you project the past onto the future and you protect yourself from future hurt. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And so past pain will become future hurt if you let it so you don't let it. And the Bible tells us to be self-giving, vulnerable, sacrificial, but instead we go into self-preservation mode and you think it's wise. And then lastly, you decide to stop trusting, stop hoping, stop believing. You no longer see people for who they are, no longer see situations for what they could be. You start generalizing, applying one situation to all situations, and you think you're protecting yourself, but you're really hurting yourself. Why, Why is this bad? Because at a certain point, this infects your relationship with others and it infects your relationship with God. You close your heart to God and you close your heart to people. Those two always go together. Everything people say needs to be argued against and you are an amazing lawyer. You find every piece of evidence to confirm your cynicism and you say, see, I told you so while probably ignoring all the other pieces of evidence that say otherwise. Knowing too much, projecting the past onto the future, killing all trust, hope, and belief, that cripples you in your faith, in your progress. And it's sin because oftentimes at its heart, there's unbelief. It's the opposite of faith. You can't believe what God says It seems so outrageously positive, too good to be true. So, of course, it's not true. Everything God says or everything people say has an asterisk. And unchecked cynicism leads to despair and oftentimes bitterness, especially with people. There's no chance of reconciliation if you only assume the worst about everyone around you. Hebrews 12, 14 through 15 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Bitterness has defiled many families. And it's contagious. We know that. And this is why as cynics, it's oftentimes hard for us to respond to suffering well. We give in to this temptation to be bitter. We start to feel sorry for ourselves. And instead of becoming humbled with soft eyes, which is God's God's goal for you in suffering, you become hardened and you have harsh eyes towards others. The Bible calls these people scoffers. When God is trying to teach us, we scoff. It's like a parent who scoffs and has glares at their parents. It's like a child who glares at the parents when they're trying to discipline. We scoff at them. If you're hardened by life and your trials and want to quit and you've even started to pull away, then you need to hear the warnings of Scripture that tell you and encourage you to persevere in faith, hold on to hope with confidence, love your brothers and sisters. What does that mean, to love your brothers and sisters? You know, a popular verse we oftentimes hear on love is 1 Corinthians 13. And let me just reveal to you how cynical I am. You know, when I hear other people that are just positive, when they hear 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding, they're like, oh, so lovely. For me, I'm like, so typical. (laughs) Again. But you know, in the Bible... Paul, he's not actually trying to give this lovely poem, and he's not being so cynical, but he is in the middle of a rebuke against these Christians in Corinth. This is a punch in the face to them. The church in Corinth was so gifted and did so many good works, and yet they're nothing because they didn't love one another. And they were poisonous. They damaged everyone around them. And so Paul rebukes them in 1 Corinthians 13 by saying, love is patient. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And I didn't used to think my cynicism was wrong. It's just who I am. And now I see how hurtful it is to myself. It contradicts everything in these verses. Faith in Jesus, love for the church, hope in a better future that Jesus is coming, believing all things, enduring all things, trusting all things, being kind, which means being generous in your assumptions about other people. You may see that as naive, but God, I think, sees that as precious. And the scriptures don't call us to be naive or childish. Understand that. It's never saying just be childish or naive. But understand, cynicism is not compatible with faith, with childlike faith. Your cynicism and faith cannot grow together. You can't run this race if there's no hope. What's hope? In a real sense, it's just faith that looks forward. It looks ahead. You have faith in God's promises and the fact that he is at work. Most often, you can't see that work. It's unseen. He's at work even in the messed up people we do church with. He promised that. He's at work in you. He's at work in that person you're assuming the worst about. People are more than their knee-jerk reactions. Assume more is happening than you see, that God hears every prayer, that Jesus is working, that you are more than your negative experiences, and that God is that good. It hurts, it, it hurts your faith. And I am so empathetic if that's the world you've had to grow up in. But you need to run. And you need to run with hope. For those who are struggling with cynicism, ultimately, I'm not going to argue that the world is better than you think. The more time passes, the more I'm like, this world sucks. I want to get to heaven. It's true that the world gets uglier and uglier, honestly, as you get older. And those who are struggling with complacency, I'm not going to try to rev you up and like try to give you some inspirational speech. Try harder, pull yourself together. The last thing I want you to do in this faith race is to look, for your, look to yourself for strength. We don't need macho Christianity. That's a result of the fall where you just think it's a mind over matter battle. No, it's the spirits. It's by faith. Our race is a faith-fueled race. It's the spirit that will empower us to run. We take off the weights that slow us down. We repent of the sins that cripple us. You look to the encouragement of those who have run before you and around you faithfully. But all of that isn't enough. Because if all you do is look to those around you, and all you do is try to take off sin, you will probably replace it with being a legalistic Christian. Verse 2 is our fuel, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy thou set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Those of you who have run competitively know that when you're looking, or when you're running, where you keep your eyes is so important. You can't be looking at your feet. You can't be looking at those around you comparing yourself, well, I'm faster than that guy. I'm slower than that guy. Stop looking around you. You put your eyes forward to the prize, to the tape. And here in Hebrews, he says, look or fix your eyes on him. That's the fuel for our faith. When the gospel is in my soul, I won't burn out. I won't quit. I will endure. If you think about it, the Bible, it's very realistic. It paints a, a dark picture of this world. You take God out, it's so ugly. Full of violence and abuse and trauma and abandonment and betrayal. 
flipping through the stories of the Bible could actually make you more cynical, not less cynical. But it reminds you that first, God understands the world. He sees how broken and flawed we are, how violent we could be towards one another. And if God had never intervened, there's plenty of reason to be cynical. Knowing the shame, he entered our lives. He would face hatred and abuse and trauma and torture and humiliation and loneliness. He despised all that. It's not like, he, oh, I love that stuff. He despised it. He knew This is ugly. I don't want to go through this. But what kept him going? The joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. He went straight in, trusting God, trusting that on the other side of the grave, there was something better, that he would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God, that his suffering would lead to glory. And where is Jesus now? He's not here. The Holy Spirit is here. Jesus is still at the right hand of the throne of God. And as the founder, I love this, the founder and perfecter of our faith, as the founder or the first or the author of our faith, He went first so that he could bring us with him. Hebrews 2.10 says he would lead many sons to glory. He crossed over so that he could be the bridge and bring us to the other other side. He's the first. He's the author. He's the foundation. And he's the finisher. He's the perfecter of our faith. He will hold on to you. He will empower you. He will sustain you. He will get you to the finish line. He'll get you to him. We'll be like Jesus and we'll be with Jesus. He will complete the work that he has begun. And if you believe the gospel, your past isn't your future. Bitterness should not win if you know that Christ went through hell to love you and to forgive you. Hope should not die if you believe in the empty tomb. Suffering is not pointless. It will lead to glory of all people on earth. Christians should be the least cynical and have the most hope. There's a song by um, these musicians named Keith and Chris and Getty, and the song is good, but it's this one line in the song, and the title of the song that gets me every time. The song is called, Don't Let Me Lose My Wonder. Don't Let Me Lose My Wonder. And whether it's effortlessness or exhaustion, complacency or cynicism, arrogance or despair, if you're feeling these, have you lost your wonder at the gospel? Have you lost your childlike faith? Are you bored? If you lose sight of what Christ has done, you will fall into cynicism or complacency. You will be prideful or you'll fall into despair. That's inevitable. And there's going to come times where we find ourselves disappointed or in despair, where you're just like, man, I don't don't think I can run anymore. I'm so tired. I'm so discouraged. I'm so angry. I'm so exhausted. And you don't have the strength to take another step. And at that moment, what will you look to? You have faith. What is your faith in? Nowadays, it's interesting to me. Sometimes I see like, I see certain people talking. Usually it's the women. And it's amazing to me how you can have such good eye eye contact. 
You just stare into each other's eyes and you're talking so deeply because, you know, in our society nowadays, it's awkward. It's sort of awkward looking someone in the eye when they're looking you in the eye. Some of us are so bad at that. Second I look at you, you're just like, you just turn away, right? Why is that? It, it, maybe you feel exposed, you're not used to that. Maybe it's intimidating. Maybe it feels like they're looking into your soul or something like that. But it's, it can be awkward looking at someone and having them look back at you. This verse calls you to look at Christ. And when you're looking at Christ, he's looking at you. And when he's looking at you, you don't need to turn away. Hebrews 4, the verse we read at the beginning of service says, he looks at you with sympathy. Even though he's been through hell, he's not hardened. He looks at you with soft eyes, not full of cynicism or bitterness. When he looks at you, he has the heart of a fellow sufferer. And when you come to him in your time of need, when you need help, he wants to pour out grace and mercy. It's a throne of grace not condemnation. For some of you, maybe the sin that you need to throw aside or what you need to put aside is condemnation. Have you been distracted in this race? Looking back at your past, thinking, I can never be forgiven. Have you been distracted looking at all your failures? Looking, or maybe you're distracted looking at all your achievements, looking at your progress, looking at how mature you are. Or you're distracted looking at the world or people who have failed in the faith. You're looking at them. Now look to Christ. Look at him today. Look at him humbly and yet somehow confidently. Hold your gaze. Don't look away. He knows you. He sees you through and through. And he'll see you all the way home. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. I'm going to read just the prayer that the author of Hebrews ends the book of Hebrews with in Hebrews chapter 13, 20 through 21. That'll be our prayer. And for those who are discouraged, this is my prayer for you. Now may the God of peace the God of peace, you are the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, sheep like us, sheep who wander. By the blood of the eternal covenant by which he forgives us, may this God equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And we're going to take communion now and Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3, the verse after ours says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We're going to take some time to consider him, to fix our eyes on him, to think about him. And for some people who are feeling guilty, Proverbs chapter 24, 16 says, For the righteous fall seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. And 
It's interesting to me how the righteous are not characterized by never failing. But they are righteous because they rise again. And if any of you are feeling bored of the gospel, I don't have any tips or tricks for you. My counsel to you is to flee to the gospel, flee to God, confess your boredom, Plead for your eyes to be open and fix your eyes on him. Cry out that he would help you not to take Christ for granted. And so we're going to take communion at this time. And as you take of the bread and the wine, these are reminders. Christ gave this as a reminder, knowing that we will need that reminder for you to experience him, for you to fix your eyes on him. As you take of the bread, Remember that he was broken for you. And as you drink of the wine, remember that his blood was shed for you. And so I would ask you to do this reverently. And if you're someone that wants to come to faith, wants to be part of the household of faith, but you've never done this before, Maybe now will be the first time. Repent of your sins and trust in him and take communion with us and then tell others. Let's take some time to pray. And praise team will lead us in some songs. And when you're ready, take of the bread and wine and let's remember Christ.